0: If you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Galatians chapter 4. Our salvation that Christ has given to us is all-encompassing. It it covers every aspect of our lives. It is pervasive throughout all of our lives. And because it is so all-encompassing and because it's so pervasive, it's very hard at times for us to get our minds around it. And so scripture does something very helpful. God does something very helpful for us. And he gives us metaphors. He, He gives us pictures and examples of what our redemption actually looks like, about his relationship with us and, and how that is to be pictured in our minds. One of these is the famous example of marriage, that Jesus takes the church as his bride. This is simply an example that Paul pulls basically from the Old Testament. So if you go back to Ezekiel 16, which is probably the most famous depiction of God calling Israel as his wife, he talks about how he found her naked and and thrust aside at the side of the road. He he comes to her and he saves her and he rescues her and he makes her his. He could have just showed up and said, listen, I I made you from nothing. I I took you out of a country that wasn't and made you mine. And he does that in other places. But there's a, a richness to the metaphor that helps us think deeply on what these things mean. What it means for God to have a relationship with his people. Adoption is one of those rich pictures that we have of how our Lord impacts us, how our Lord interplays with us, what it means for us to know God as Lord and as Redeemer and as Savior. This is why when adoption is handled wrongly in the world, when the picture is messed with, with the, the idea of God adopting us, when that picture, from a sinful human standpoint, is ruined and marred, We ought to find it very, very offensive. Some 11 years ago, there was a woman in Tennessee who adopted a young boy from China. He was about six or seven at the time. Anyone who has spent any time looking into adoption or thinking about adoption, especially internationally, understands and should understand and has pictured to them very clearly the difficulties of taking on a child from another country because these, child, these children as orphans have had a very difficult upbringing, and it impacts them emotionally and psychologically in ways that can be devastating to them. Ms. Hansen found this out the hard way when she brought her son home from Russia. Within the first couple of months, that six-year-old boy had threatened not only her life, but the life of many of her friends. He had not only by her account, but by other accounts, tried to start fires in the house to burn down the house with everyone in it. She felt as though the orphanage had lied to her about the emotional and psychological difficulties that this child had. She felt like Russia had lied to her about the difficulties that this child had. And so she did something unthinkable. She put him on a plane and sent him home. I shouldn't say sent him home. Sent him back alone with a note like she was returning something to Walmart. She should be spoken of mercifully for many of us Have no idea the type of difficulty that it would be to take a child in who acted and had the difficulties in their life the way he did. But at the same time, that wasn't a product that she bought from Walmart. It wasn't returning a pair of shoes to Amazon. That was her child. She continually says in the note that he posed a danger to her friends and family. He was her family. The problem for Christians is that we are adopted by God. And so when you have a woman who thinks that she can adopt someone and then say, no, 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 they're not mine. I want to send them back. I want to, in her own words, disannul the adoption. I want to make it as though the adoption never happened. This is not something that we just find deplorable because of the international relationship between Russia and the United States. We don't just find it deplorable for what it means for that child but we find it deplorable because it is anti-gospel. That action hits at the very heart of what it means for us to be adopted by God. It's not just in the major things, though. We often talk about adoption very, very poorly. We've been around people, my wife and I, who have spoken of adopted children, and they've said things like, well, that's not their talking about other people who have adopted children. It's not their real child. That's their adopted kid. He's not biologically theirs. If we misunderstand what adoption is, we misunderstand what it means for us to be adopted of how we relate to God fundamentally as his children. And so, we should definitely go to God's word then and think through what Paul says here about adoption. born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, To be known by God? How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years? I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. This is the Word of God. The first thing I want to implore you to understand is that adoption takes time. Adoption takes time time. This is certainly true in the real world. Adoptions take years. If you were planning to go to Russia to adopt a child, it takes years and it takes thousands of dollars to do so. Not simply because Russia wants to extort you because they want you to give up on your adoption or any of those foreign countries do, but it actually safeguards the kids because if kids are cheap to get, you are not the one who is going to get them. Sex traffickers and child slavery will get them. And so it's actually a good thing. Adoption takes time. Paul begins this by mentioning that he means, he says, I mean that. He's trying to explain something. I think what he's trying to explain is this idea of what the law's role is under sin. So, we just finished reading, now three weeks ago, verse 28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The idea there is that in order to be saved, no one has a step up on anyone else. All, whether Jew or Greek, are saved through the work of Jesus Christ. The law doesn't give them an advantage in salvation. At the same time, though, Paul has talked about the law as though it protected them. And again, we talked about this several weeks ago. It provided them protection. It helps in some form or fashion to move them toward Christ. So the question is, if the law has that function, how come they don't have a step up? How come everything is level when it comes to Christ? And so he's going to further explain this, and he does it through a metaphor. It's a very normal metaphor. He talks about this child is a slave. Now, clearly, Paul is stretching things a bit there, right? Because the child is different than a slave. He's not a slave. He is a child. But Paul means something very particular by this. He means that how the child is treated is really no different than a slave. There, there are people who are placed over him who tell him where to go, what to do, who he can eat with, what he can eat, who, is he, who he's even allowed to associate with. These things are not up to him. That child is told those things. Although he might be the ruler of all, and although one day he might come to own all of it, He doesn't get to choose which one he is going to do. He doesn't get to make these decisions for himself. He is a child. Until there's a day set by the Father. And on that day, the Father says, when you reach this age, you are now old enough to make those decisions for yourself. You are old enough to be mature and to be expected to act like the heir that you are. Paul begins to apply this, which I think is fairly straightforward, in verse 3. He says, in the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The we there, I think, is referring not to all people, but specifically to the Jews. And what you are to think of is not individual Jews, okay? So you're not supposed to think of one person growing up into maturity and then coming to know Christ. But he's talking about Israel as though they were all one person, And so when you think of Israel as one person as a child here, and the picture is is being a child, before they reach maturity, you are to think of the people from the Old Testament like Moses, Gideon, and David, Rahab, Deborah, and Hannah, these saints of the Old Testament that were set aside to inherit all things, They were set aside and chosen by God that they might inherit all things at the right time, but they did not inherit it then. They were children, and therefore they were still under the force of these elementary principles of the world. They were not freed from sin. This begs the question of, what does elementary principles mean? It's it's wide use. There's... A number of different things that it could mean. Some people think that this has astrological significance, numerical significance. It was used in philosophy. The elementary principles were sometimes called earth, wind, fire, and rain, right? Not the band from the 60s, but the actual four elements of Greek philosophy. It's unclear exactly how Paul's using it here, and people vary quite a bit, but this is the basic idea. These elementary principles were the building blocks. It was the very nature of creation, It's the very nature of the world in which we live. And what Paul is saying is the law didn't escape the Jews from living under the very nature of the world. The very nature of the world is sold into slavery under sin. So simply because the Jews had the law, they still didn't avoid sinning. It didn't somehow clean them from sinning. It didn't clear them from the slavery that they had to sin. Moses, Gideon, David... Rahab, Deborah, Hannah, although they would be justified in Christ by faith, at that time were still sold into slavery under sin. God had not freed them from that. Until, he says, God sends his son. In the fullness of time, he sends forth his son. In, in the fullness of time, meaning that he, he waited Centuries. He, he talked of the redemption from the very moment that Adam and Eve fell, the very curses that he lays down upon the serpent. He talks about the redemption that is coming. He continually talks in the Old Testament about the redemption that is coming and it's not until time is full. It's not until the time is right. It's not until the time set by the Father that he says now redemption might be known. We talked about in the Old Testament what this fullness of time might be. So God gives them a sacrificial system so that they might know that they need to be cleansed from their sin by a death. He gives them a king and kingdom that they might know that there is one coming that they would serve with all their heart, mind, body, and soul. He gives them the exile to show them that their sins are taken personally by God. And simply because God has called them as a nation doesn't mean that he will simply let their sin go. They will have to pay for their sin, and he has given them promises. And all of these things, all of these things are necessary and needed. They need to marinate. They need to sit there like a good chili, right? Good chili is best chili after three or four days. Hopefully refrigerating it in there somewhere. But but the The ingredients mix together, the flavors melt together, and soon it gets better. And that's the way God has waited to reveal Jesus Christ. He's waited to reveal him so that all of these elements might bleed and blend together that you would better understand and know the very work of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. It was when the fullness of time had come. And what's more than that, the fullness of time came in the Pax Romana. God had allowed Rome to take over the world. First he allowed Greece to do it, and then he allowed Rome to do it. And that seems like a very backwards thing because Rome prevented a, or made a huge number of problems for Israel. But at the time, frankly, for the spread of the gospel, there could have been nothing better. There was a common language. Everyone spoke Greek. You could go to almost any corner of the known world and you could speak to someone because they all spoke Greek. You couldn't have done that earlier. Not only that, but because Rome was the one in charge of everything, travel was easy. You could go from one province to another as long as you were allowed to travel and you weren't being, well, Paul. You could travel very clearly. But even Paul, who got thrown in prison, when he gets thrown in prison, he realizes that this is a good thing. He says in Philippians 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me that is being imprisoned has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. As the imperial guard was... was transferring him from one spot to another. They spoke of the gospel that Paul was bringing to people. All of it served to advance the gospel. The fullness of time has come, and God sent his son. He sends his son, who is fully human. He's born of a woman and fully under the law, although you'll notice Paul very clearly doesn't say he's under sin. Because of this, he provides for them redemption from the law and adoption as son. Paul then turns to the Gentiles. He starts the change in verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son. The Jews and the Gentiles alike get the spirit of God that cries out, Abba, Father. And if you are a son, then you are an heir. And then he turns to their former lives. So he's talked about the Jewish former lives. Now he talks about their former lives. And he says, now you, before you were saved, you worshipped things that you thought were God's, but by nature couldn't possibly be God." The Jews weren't like that, right? The Jews worshipped God, who was by nature God. He had revealed himself to them. But you, you worshipped idols. You worshipped other gods that couldn't, in their very nature, ever be God. And then he says something stunning. He says, if you want to turn to the law now, if you want to turn to works by the law, you are doing nothing but turning back to those pagan gods. You're turning the clock back. Time is clearly an important issue here, and we would do well to think through it some. The first thing I would like to say about time in this instance is the very nature of adoption does differentiate biological children from adoptive children. We're not wrong to point that out. That's a very clear and obvious thing. I have three children. Each one of them is biological. There was never a time when any of those children were alive. Not one moment, no matter when you figure, not whenever you think, no matter who you are in the world, when that child comes alive, that child is mine. They were always mine. They have my imprint on them, all over them. They were mine and there was never a time when they weren't mine, but that's not true of adoptive children. There is always a time when you were not that parent's child. We know people who have adopted from China. There was a time in each of those children's lives when they had no parent, when they didn't know their parents now, and when those parents were not the parents of that child. Friends, notice how Paul changes the metaphor here, and it's important. He talks about them as though they're sons. He talks about the Jews as though they're sons, but then at the end he says, they were adopted. There was a time when they were not sons. There was a time when we were not sons. You cannot go through life calling every single person in the world a child of God. It's just not true. This is one of the things that German enlightenment that came across Europe and then into America gave to us. It was just rancid. This universal fatherhood of God. That God is a father to everyone. God is not a father to everyone. God is a father to those whom he has given the right to call him father through the work of Jesus Christ, but not to everyone. And there is a significant difference in the relationship of somebody to God when they are considered his son or his daughter versus when they are simply considered his creation. God still relates to everybody as God the creator. But what does that mean? What is the difference? Simply, the difference is that a creator can do whatever he wants to with his creation. He doesn't need your permission. He doesn't need anything from you. He can do whatever he wants to to you, good, bad, or otherwise. He is under no obligation to be kind or merciful, to be gentle with you. He is under no obligation to demonstrate love and fondness for you. He can treat you however he wants. I had the wonderful privilege of listening to Pastor Richard's sermon from two weeks ago, and I will now steal something from that sermon because I am a thief. He, he said that when he enlisted in basic training, they took him down to Alabama, and the warning was given to him. You, you northerners, when you go out in this Alabama sun, you are going to be tempted to go out and frolic and have fun, but if you get burned... And you don't show up for your training the next day. You are in dereliction of duties and you will be court-martialed because you are destroying U.S. government property. You burn yourself. You are the property of the United States. You are not your own. He talked about that, how God owns everything. But God as creator owns you. He can treat you like a piece of property. And you can fight against it with your very nature, but that is the difference between being a creature and being a creator. We will talk about this tonight. If you are here to go into a community group, we are going to be talking about the very nature of God as creator. And one of the passages that we are going to read in that is Isaiah 45. This is verses 9 through 13. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting or to a woman what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the one who formed him, ask of me things to come. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of you have no right to speak to your creator and ask him why he's doing what he's doing he gets to do what he wants to do he can build up nations and he can take them down listen to how he speaks to Pharaoh in Exodus 9 verses 13-16 through the Lord said to Moses rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him thus says the Lord the God of the Hebrews let my people go that they may serve me For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But he didn't do it. So there's kindness there. Why did God show kindness and mercy to him? He said, I I could have cut you off. I could have squashed you like a worthless bug. Why didn't I do it? But for this purpose, I've raised you up. I've built up Egypt into this massive empire for this. So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth and that I might show you my power. He builds up Egypt to smash it, to show that he is greater than everything. That is what a creator gets to do. But God is not just our creator in Christ The fundamental difference is God can't treat you anyway once you are his son or daughter. He has fundamentally covenanted with you to treat you with love. That is the difference. Whereas before, he did not have to be good to you. He did not have to show love to you, kindness, mercy, compassion. He did not have to be committed to your good. He didn't need to be committed to giving you food and the very necessities of life and even giving you eternal life, but now he is fully committed to that. He is fully committed to you in everything that he does to be good to you, to be kind to you, to be merciful to you, to be compassionate to you. That is what a father does. And the very nature of God being Father in Jesus Christ means that he will only do those things for us. And therefore, he has made you not only sons to him, but heirs as well. That you might inherit all things through him. 1 Corinthians 3.21 says, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. The picture there is that all of it is yours. Why are you nitpicking over which apostle is which? Why are you trying to make yourself more esteemed in the eyes of man? Everything belongs to you. You are heirs with God. Of everything that God has made, everything that he will remake... First Peter three, 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Read, he has adopted us to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You have an inheritance, not because God owed it to you, but because God loves you because he is your father in Christ. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Christ has redeemed you. Therefore, do not turn back to those worthless and empty things that you used to worship. The issue is time. You were not a child of God. You are now a child of God worthy of full inheritance rights in his kingdom. Everything that he has is yours. Why then would you ever want to go back to those things that were not? Why do you want to go back to sin? Why do you want to go back to these worthless and empty things that can give you nothing? Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do not seek the approval of man on Facebook instead of seeking it from God in heaven. Do not comfort yourself with food in your belly instead of the comfort of the communion with the Holy Spirit. Do not seek the joy of crass entertainment instead of the cross's atonement. Do not seek the things of this world, for when you do, that is all you get. And you are removing yourself from your position as an inheritance, as a child of God, and moving back to worthless and empty and vain things. We don't need a parent to take us to the airport, to ship us off we are more than willing to go down to the airport and buy our own tickets and to get away. We do it daily, every time we sin. And God keeps you. Instead of being one who pushes you away, he goes and retrieves you and brings you back. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit, to convict you to make it so that you do not want to run away from God, but you understand the glories and the wonders of the God who has saved you and the beauty of Jesus Christ and his salvation. This is why the church is there to call you back from your sin. This is why we have what is written in Hebrews twelve seven through 11, for it is discipline that you have to endure it. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated... Then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. God as a father, will give you difficult and troubling things. He will give you trials. He will give you things that will break you down. He will give you cancer. He will give you death. He will give you broken bones. He will give you broken relationships. He will take your job away from you. He will financially crush you, not to penalize you as a son, but to discipline you as a child, that you might be holy before him for your joy in him, to keep your eyes off of the treasures that are in the earth and move them to heaven. Cling to the Father, for he works for your good, your joy, your happiness, and your holiness. Do not go back in time to those things that were worthless and weak. Adoption takes time. Secondly, the adoption takes the Trinity. I think many people, when we talk about the Trinity, they think only of sort of abstract theology and difficult abstract theology as well. This idea of three persons in one God is difficult to get your mind around, and because of that, we we almost consider impractical. I think the great reason why so many people are weak on Trinitarian theology is because they, frankly, in their heart of hearts, they just don't see what it it matters. They're told it's supposed to matter, but they don't see why it matters. (laughs) But the Trinity isn't just something for you to believe in. The Trinity is immensely practical. The the Trinity is something that impacts how we think of God, how we think of salvation, how we think of everything around us. You might not have noticed it, but... Even the way that we organize worship here is organized around the Trinity. We, we adore God the Father. We, we are assured of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we pray to the Spirit to apply these things to us so that we might hear Him. That is worship of the Trinity built into the very nature of our worship. Fred Sanders, who is a very excellent theologian, whose primary study is the work of the Trinity wrote a very helpful book called The Deep Things of God, which is not terribly difficult to work through. It's not easy, but it's not, not terribly difficult. But he, he wanted to write what it means to recapture Trinitarian theology in Protestant churches. And he talks about how liturgy, the way that worship services are organized, can help do that. But there's something else that's really important. He says, everything we do has Trinitarian theology built into it. We just don't, we just don't know it. He says this, Everything evangelicals do is grounded in Trinitarian commitments, and every evangelical practice repays for the reflection. Proclamation of the gospel, personal appropriation of salvation, assurance of salvation, submission to biblical authority, knowledge of the Bible, authoritative preaching, effective worship, conversational prayer, world mission, and many other standard features of the evangelical church in life are rich resources for Trinitarian exploration. Dig anywhere, and you will hit Trinitarian gold. Listen, I don't think that Paul meant to write about the Trinity in this passage. I think what he meant to do was explain something of the nature of the law and something of the nature of adoption to his people. But while he was digging for adoption, he hit Trinitarian gold. Listen to how Paul talks here. It is God the Father who organizes everything. It is God the Father who plans it out. It is God the Father who sends. It is God the Father who sets the time. He is the organizer behind all of it. He is the ruler and the authority behind everything that happens. And what does he do? He sends not only the Son, but also the Spirit. The Son is present here as well, because He doesn't just say God sends a Son, but he sends his Son. God is being presented here as the Father, but he sends his Son. That Son must then be preexistent. You couldn't send something that didn't exist. You would make something. You would somehow create it. But that's not what he did. He didn't create the sun out of nothing. He sent the sun. Now here, the ESV is going to give us bad translations a couple of times. The ESV is not alone in this. It says that he is born of a woman. Mm. He is born of a woman, and the ESV is kind of getting at what it wants to get at there. But that's not actually kind of the language that's being used. It's not the normal language of being born. It's the language of became. He became one who comes from a woman. He became human, is what Paul's saying there. Again, it's the idea that Jesus was other. The Son was other. He was fully God of fully God, as the Apostles' Creed would say. And he came human. He took on a nature that he did not have. And he did so precisely because he needed to be put under the law. So he became fully human. He became under the law so that he might do what the law could not do. And people could not do who were under the law because they were sold under sin, And that has redeemed them from the law. And so he pays the penalty for those who are under the law that they might receive adoption as sons because he is the true and living son so that when they are found in him, they are the fathers because he is the son of the father. He is one with the father in everything. And then the ESV does another bad thing when it talks about the sending of the spirit. Notice how he talks about the sending of a son in verse four. God sent forth his son and then in verse six, God has sent the spirit. The same exact words in every way is used of the sending of the Son and the sending of the Spirit. God sent forth his Son. God sent forth the Spirit. God sends them both out. And what does the Spirit do for us? He sends, the, he sends the Spirit of his Son, the same Spirit that helped Jesus overcome temptation, the same Spirit that helped Jesus overcome all of the difficulties of this world that he relied upon That same spirit then comes and it dwells in us and it cries out, it, not us, it cries out, Abba, Father. Now, when you talk to people, I've heard it said many times, Abba is some sort of sentimental word like daddy, right? It doesn't mean that. It's much like... When you make little things and you eat little things before dinner, we call them appetizers, but you can also call them hors d'oeuvres, okay? That is a loan word. If you've ever seen it written out, it's written out like hors divorce. okay? Because French people don't ever want to pronounce anything the way it's written, and we have taken it from French. We just took it and we said hors d'oeuvres, okay? So that's how they pronounce it. That's how we're going to pronounce it. But we don't change the spelling of it, okay? Because I don't know why. We're English. We just don't change anything. But that's just a loan word. Abba is just a loan word. It's simply... Aramaic for father. And so when we read Abba, father, that father bit isn't sort of like an extension of what Abba is. It's simply the translation of it. The Holy Spirit comes in us and it makes us cry out. It cries out, Abba. Why is that important? Who would have ever considered God to be their father before this? There is no evidence anywhere that Jews ever prayed to God as their father. Certainly the Gentiles didn't. They were not children of the gods. The gods were there to be appeased. The gods were there pre-existing before them. They weren't fathers to any of them. But the Spirit comes and he works in us to proclaim him as Father. Why is this important? Because that is the exact thing that Jesus did. These are the exact words that Jesus used in Mark. Mark 14:32 through 36. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Those same words, Abba, Father, are repeated here. The Holy Spirit, when we are troubled, makes us cry out to a God who is not simply a God to us, but is Father to us, the same way that he was Father to Christ. What's more, Paul, when he finishes this account, notice what he does in verse 8. He talks about the fact that they weren't gods. The very nature of them, the the very ontology of what they were made them not gods, but now you know God. God. Now notice what he does he changes it he says you know God we think oh mental knowledge they have they've learned of the gospel they now know the gospel in their heads but then he flips it and something very important happens he says not that you know God but rather that you are known by him Now that changes things a little bit because God has mental knowledge of all of you well before well before you learned of the gospel. He has foreknowledge of all things. He knows not only the position of electrons, he knows the speed of electrons. He knows where everything is moved at every point in time. He knows every morsel of bread that you've ever put into your mouth and he knows where your lost socks are. He has all knowledge of everything. He didn't gain knowledge. What did he gain? He gained a difference in relationship to you. This is the knowledge of intimacy. He knew you as creator. Now he knows you as father. What is Paul saying you now know the very nature of God. Not simply in your mind, but you have experienced it. You have experienced the Trinity. God the Father sends his Son, and the Spirit applies that to your heart. The Father plans, the Son achieves, the Spirit applies. You have experienced the very nature of God, those things that are not God. You have now known what it means to be a child of God, to know God as he exists, three in one. Adoption is and deserves to be a beloved metaphor for us in Christ. There is nothing like adoption that that speaks of how we weren't God's children and he has made us part of his family. We know of several families who have adopted foreign children. One of them was the Hack family in Louisville. Wonderful family. They decided that they wanted to adopt from China. And so, because a lot of the the ways that you go through adoption takes a long time to get a child, and one of the ways that you can speed that up is you take a child who has special needs And so they went on a special needs uh, request for a child, and they got a child who had special needs, and his special needs were he had a heart that wasn't right. And they didn't know what all the problems were, but they knew, they knew before they adopted him that little Samuel had a bad heart. They didn't know the extent of it, so they brought him back to the States, and they had some specialists at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, which is about an hour, hour and 15 minutes away from Louisville. They had them look at his heart, and they did procedures on him, and that didn't work. They gave him a whole new heart. That has worked, sort of. He has strange infections, and he has strange things that go on with him. His numbers for various and sundry blood levels and other levels go up and down, and that young man who was adopted when he was two has spent the better part of his life, of his years in America, in a hospital room. Now, I imagine if he was older, Samuel doesn't know better, I imagine if he was older, he would look at that life and say, man, it was better in China. In China, I I played a lot. I I certainly wasn't bound to a a hospital bed. I I didn't have people cutting me open. I didn't have soreness from that. I I didn't have all these infections. I, I didn't have all of this stuff wrong with me. it'd be very easy for him to think it's better in China. But in China, he had no mom sitting in Cincinnati with him for years. It would take a fool to think that his life was better in China where he would have died alone. With orphanage workers, as busy as they are and as much as they might care, not able to provide him the attention that he needed. It would have been foolish for him to think for a second that he was better there than he is here. So it is with us. Your life is probably difficult and it might be painful. Struggles and trials are promised to come to you. But God, if you know him as Father through Jesus Christ, as the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father, to him has a plan for you and works all things. He is orchestrating everything in the world for your good. Why would you then run from where you are To where you were. Why would you want to orphan yourself again? Going back to the weak and the worthless things of sin and idolatry. That used to mark your life. Instead of fully pushing closer to be known by God. And to be known with God. Press yourself into the gospel. Press yourself into Christ. That you might know who he is. And all of his fullness. Don't long... For China, because your life here is hard. Don't long for Egypt, because the desert is dry. Don't long for the world, because you can't quite get to the next one yet. Live for the inheritance that is coming to you. Live through the pain and the struggle of faith, for God has better things in store for you. How deep is the Father's love for us? It's deeper than you can imagine. It's greater than you will ever experience, and more joyous than you can believe. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, friends, there your heart will also be. Let us pray. Father God, we are thankful for your word today. We are thankful for the work of your Son, providing us redemption from a law that we could not maintain. We are thankful that he has shed his blood to pay for our wages, that we might be known in him as your Son's. We're thankful, Father, that the Spirit has convicted us of this so we might cry out to you as a Father, as one who will answer our prayers, who loves us and who cares for us in Christ. Let us then press fully to know you as Father and stop seeking the things of this world that draw us away from you, that your work in us might not be in vain. We pray that your Spirit will help us with this, guide us. We pray that we will see Jesus Christ all the more clearly and love him for it. We pray that you will give us faith above all things. That we might stand before you in our salvation, which is about to come and receive an inheritance that is undefiled and unfading, waiting for us. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.